There you go. Four punch, five punch, six punch combination. Body shot, body shot. Bang, 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 bang. Telling him not to counter punch. Welcome, fight fans. It's time for the main event of the week. It's the Fight City Podcast, episode 13, featuring your host, Alden Kodash, and soon to be joined by the editor-in-chief of thefightcity.com, Michael Carbert. We had a great boxing weekend, including plenty of fireworks from the Lone Star State in Texas in the Ford Center, as Top Rank put on a terrific card for us that featured Sergey Kovalev versus Elider Alvarez II, Teofimo Lopez in style, Richard Comey's title-winning knockout, and the return of the unbeaten Mexican Olympian Oscar Valdez following his broken jaw suffered against Scott Quigg last year. Stay tuned for an in depth discussion of some of the best moments on the ESPN Plus card. So first up, let's talk about Richard Comey's knockout victory in the second round over Issa Chaniev to win the vacant IBF title that just barely eluded him against Robert Easter in their 2016 war. So Comey after the knockout, claimed afterwards that he had an injury in the knuckle of his right hand and he'll get an x-ray on it in the near future. However, if he's cleared, there's a lot of talk that he'll be facing Vasil Lomachenko in the Staples Center in April. Should Ludabella advise Comey against such a move just months after winning the world title that he's been chasing for so long? Personally, I would advise against it. I mean, the money is obviously there, but a dominant loss to Lomachenko <clears throat> has historically had career-altering consequences for his opponents, such as Guillermo Rigondeau, Nicholas Walters, and Rocky Martinez, as it's just rare for a fighter to return to elite form after just getting their soul taken from them and getting beaten so badly by arguably the best pound-for-pound -pound fighter in the world. As stated in Zachary Alapi's interview with Comey on thefightcity.com, the move to work with Andre Rozier in the recent past has really shaken up the Ghanaian's boxing career for the positive, though, as he's moved to Brooklyn and is a very long way from home. But with the victory, he does become the ninth Ghanaian world champion in boxing history after the likes of Ike Corte and Azuma Nelson. And next up, let's discuss arguably the most dynamic performance on the card, Teofimo Lopez improving to 12-0, adding his 10th knockout to his resume with a one-sided 7th round knockout victory over former two-time world title challenger Diego Magdaleno, a southpaw. While the fight was a non-title fight, it was nonetheless the co-feature event ahead of two world title fights featuring Oscar Valdez and Richard Comey. Just goes to show the kind of star potential Teofimo Lopez has at only 21 years old and with just a little over two years of professional boxing experience. It struck me last night that Teofimo Lopez 
appeared so big at lightweight. I, I guess it was just something that I didn't really notice previously, but at only 21, I expect him to fill into maybe even a welterweight frame at some point in the future. And, and with that being said, the question naturally arises as to whether or not he should take advantage of the big lightweight frame that he has and take on some of the best in the, in the lightweight division before he grows out of it. The only issue is... Richard Comey does face Lomachenko in April and presumably loses, as I would expect him to, there aren't really any 135-pound titleists that would be an appropriate uh, stepping stone to face for a guy like Lopez with only 12 fights. Not saying he wouldn't be an interesting foe for Lomachenko, but having never had to resort to plan B, never having to resort to plan B before in his career, facing such a multifaceted challenge and arguably the best fighter in the world in Lomachenko could put him in deeper waters than he could handle at this stage in his career, without a question. Now, put him against Richard Comey, on the other hand, and I think you have the perfect stepping stone needed to elevate Tio to championship status. Comey is a newly crowned proud champion, a strong fighter from Ghana with a proven track record of durability that he showed in the Easter fight. But of course, he's there to be hit, and hence, should there be any reason to, uh, to, to think that he has a chance of taking the best punches from arguably the hardest puncher at 135 pounds, it would definitely be questionable. And I think you'd have to favor Lopez going into the fight, despite the fact that he's 21 with 12 fights. So um, the last point I want to make about Lopez is, is the focus of a lot of controversy in his antics after he knocked out Magdaleno. He was heavily criticized on social media, not to mention by Magdaleno's brother Jesse and his corner, for his antics, Magdaleno's corner. I find it very unsportsmanlike to showboat next to a man in serious need of medical attention, like Diego Magdaleno certainly was, and then pawn off the incident in the post-fight interview as just being part of the entertainment aspect of the sport. You know, boxing, without a question, does sensationalize violence, and, and which... Uh, sometimes violence that could even be life-threatening, but at the end of the day... The guys are not true gladiators from ancient Rome in there. They're paid professional athletes who have families to support often, parents, children, friends, other loved ones. You know, of course, all that thinking goes out the window when the bell rings, but after the fight's over, there's, there's no reason why a fighter should ignore the gravitas of the situation of an opponent being badly hurt and having to face severe repercussions both professionally and in terms of his health. Lopez's antics were a very far cry from those of Jack Dempsey and a young Mike Tyson, both of whom would take little time rushing over to their fallen opponents, uh, trying to help them up after they were knocked out. But I also think we should realize that we're talking about a young 21-year-old kid who's really getting his first taste of super superstardom, and he's getting a very quick dose of it. And uh, certainly there's some maturation in order, but hey, I mean, it, it won't impact his ratings. He's still one of the most, uh, one of the most hotly anticipated young prospects on the boxing horizon today, and my, myself included. I, 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 you know, I, I can't deny that I want to see more of this kid, and I want to see him move up and face the best at 135 pounds. So let's talk about one more fight before we discuss the main event with Michael Carbert being Sergei Kovalev versus 
Alida Alvarez. Talk about Oscar Valdez, who defended his WBO featherweight title against unbeaten Italian Carmine Tomassoni, knocking him out in the seventh round, scoring several knockdowns in the process, really dominating the fight as most people expected. Probably the most dramatic moment of the fight, to be quite frank. Tomazone proposing to his girlfriend Laura in the ring after the fight, probably the most unusual proposal you could ever imagine after having taken a pretty bad beating from Oscar Valdez. But hey, good for him. Uh, Hope them the best of luck going forward. But in terms of the fight, about Valdez, solid comeback performance after being off 11 months following a broken jaw suffered against Scott Quigg in an extremely gutsy effort. Valdez definitely deserved every bit of those 11 months that he took off. And, you know, he looked good in there. He he came back. He mixed up his attack very well, showed patience and poise. And uh, he uh, he looked to return to form against a fighter that, yeah, he was supposed to beat. But he, he beat him in impressive fashion. So the question now is, you know, is he going to pick up where he left off and, and be considered for some of the best unification fights at 126? Namely, I know this fight's been discussed on social media quite a bit, Josh Warrington, the IBF featherweight champion of the world. It it rings out as as something of a dream fight in 2019 for boxing fans if Josh Warrington gets past Kid Galahad in a fight that uh, many expect to happen sometime this year. Uh, it's, It's a fight that might get the featherweight champions, the fellow champions at 126, to come out of their shells quite a bit and, and unify the featherweight division for the first time since 2011. And, I mean, that that was the last time I believe we had a unified featherweight champion. I'm, I'm not even talking all four belts. I'm just talking at least two. Go back to 2011 when Yuri Orcas Gamboa held the IBF and WBA titles at 126. That says, that's how far back you got to go. Uh, to find a time when the champions were converging and, and trying to unify the division. So to put it to put it short, you know, it's a highly fractured division, and I really hope Valdez and Warrington can get it back on the right track uh, and put on a terrific fight. Stylistically, these guys are made to fight each other. Warrington could make anyone look exciting. He just presses forward uh, with his guerrilla warfare type tactics and his underrated boxing skills. And and Valdez is a uh, he's a good boxer, but you know, as we saw against Scott Quigg, he's got a lot of heart. He's definitely willing to get down and uh, grit his teeth and and gut it out in there if needed. And I think we'd be looking at a technical fight for a lot of the fight, but I think the fight would also uh, at at some point evolve into a war. And I think that's why um, boxing fans are clamoring to see Oscar Valdez and Josh Warrington. And now we welcome the Fight City Editor-in-Chief Michael Carbert to the show. How are you tonight, Michael? I'm doing well, Alden. How are you? Very well. So let's talk about the biggest event of this weekend, Sergey Kovalev's surprising unanimous decision over a leader, Storm Alvarez, in the Ford Center in Texas. So uh, first question, what happened to Kovalev being a shot fighter? I think I'm as surprised as anyone else. Yeah, I think um, I think the vast majority of... of of uh, boxing pundits and so-called experts are surprised by what unfolded. Uh, of course, it's easy in retrospect to say maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised. 
Um, it, it's interesting because the rematch in some respects was uh, how I expected the first fight to go. Yeah. And, and uh, when I picked Kovalev to win the first fight, the main reason was because was my recognition of the fact that Alvarez tends to be a negative fighter and he can be very passive in the ring. And um, so his performance in the first fight was, you know, just as shocking as what we saw in the rematch in a way. So I'm not going, going to say that though, that I'm not, I'm reluctant to, to say though that Kovalev doesn't deserve credit. Of course he deserves a lot of credit uh, for what happened in the second fight. But there's no question that it was a different Elider Alvarez who answered the bell in the second match. And I don't know why that is. And based on the reports I've seen, even Alvarez doesn't seem to know why that is. So um, something went wrong with Alvarez's performance. And in the meantime, Kovalev, Kovalev seemed revitalized and uh, as our writer Ralph Semyon uh, on the fightcity.com discusses maybe the key was the new trainer, Buddy McGirt, uh, because there's no question Alvarez, uh, sorry, Kovalev came into this fight. He looked very relaxed, very confident, and he executed the strategy to perfection. And uh, you can make the case that he won maybe 11 of the 12 rounds. I've seen a number of people say that. Uh, that Alvarez only got one round. I mean, that's a dominant performance. Now, um, I, I have to agree with you. Um, Ralph Simeon called Buddy McGirt's contribution to Kovalev a, a uh, revitalizing a reclamation job in what Kovalev was able to produce on Saturday night. And it was very surprising to me, given that Kovalev's a guy that's been with a total of three trainers, uh, John David Jackson, Arbor, her son Pulatov and now Buddy McGirt in less than two years. Usually when you see a guy go through this many trainers coming off losses, especially stoppage losses, you're thinking that this guy is looking for anyone to blame but himself and, and maybe the fact that he's just not a top-level fighter anymore. It, it's, it begs the question now, how much credit does Buddy McGirt deserve for Kovalev's victory? And I know it's similar to when Michael Moore beat Evander Holyfield in their first fight. A, a lot of the credit went to Teddy Atlas for inspiring a victory out of uh, an overly tacit Michael Moore by nature. Um, but I'm seeing something of the same thing. I'm seeing Buddy McGurk get a lot of credit that, you know, I, I think Kovalev should deserve a little bit more because in my opinion, Buddy McGurk brought out what has always been there. He just instilled a new mentality in him that Kovalev doesn't have to rely on the punching power. He's able to rely on his great boxing skills, which I've always thought really what put him apart in the light heavyweight division. Yeah. And it's important to look back and, and to back up what you just said look back and, and recall his performances against Bernard Hopkins and then against Andre Ward in the first fight. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's boxing at a very high level. That's technical, uh, very sophisticated, very uh, heady 
boxing technique that was at play in both of those matches. So we knew that Kovalev could fight that way. Um, what we thought we saw, though, in the first fight against Alvarez was that Kovalev just didn't have that in him anymore. He didn't have the inner strength. He didn't have the, the discipline. Um, and, and, it, and it causes one to give a lot of credit to what Kovalev, what sounded like an excuse going into the rematch coming from Kovalev, which was, I was overtrained. I was overtrained. I, I left too much of my fight in the gym. I just didn't have it. And well, now you look at the difference in the performance and you have to conclude, maybe he's telling the truth. Um, but as to the question of how much credit should Buddy McGirt get, I mean, it's, a, it's always an interesting debate. Because on, on the surface of it, I think you have to give uh, James Buddy McGirt, who is a former world champion himself, mm -hmm. um, a lot of credit. Uh, and, and when I say that, part of what I'm thinking about is not just the performance of Sergei Kovalev, but all the stuff that they had to deal with. And I don't know how they dealt with it, but they had to deal with the fact that Kovalev had suffered not just a defeat, but a stoppage defeat, a shocking knockout loss, our knockout of the year for 2018. Yep. And then on top of that, you've got this massive distraction of this criminal case going back to an alleged assault taking place this past June. And, and okay, it happened quite a while ago. It had to have been some kind of a distraction, one would think, going into the first fight. But now, now it's come out in the public realm. You would think it's still a huge distraction. How did McGirt handle that? You know, and, and that's why in the article, Ralph Semyon kind of like hints at the idea that Buddy, Buddy McGirt was maybe more than just a trainer. Yeah. He, he, he maybe was also, you know, a bit of a psychiatrist or a psychologist and, 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 a, and a father confessor. And, you know, he, he works some magic there. To, to make sure that Kovalev was relaxed, focused, in, in optimum shape, and confident. And, and how do you do that as a trainer of a, of a fighter that you're really just getting to know? I mean, it's his first time working with Kovalev. I'm not sure exactly how long they've known each other or started training together. But you know, as you mentioned, there's some severe distractions going on in Kovalev's head going into that fight. Not only was... Uh, he forced to contemplate whether or not he could continue as a elite level fighter, but you know, he's got the criminal charges that he's going up against. He's uh, has other personal issues in his life. I'm sure. And buddy McGirt had to take all of that on without knowing him all that well. And, and, uh, and, and produced a career defining performance potentially. It's, it's very impressive. It is. And, and there's a story to be told there. I'm, you know, somebody, if anybody out there is listening who's a journalist and has any connections with uh, main events or Buddy McGirt, I mean, there's an interesting story that, that I'm sure a lot of boxing fans would love to, to learn. Like, who made the phone calls? Who decided on Buddy McGirt? What was the first meeting like? How did they get along? Uh, you know, how did they make, make it work in the gym? I mean, it, it, it is an interesting story, and, and uh, at this point, it's kind of a mystery. But uh, I saw a post-fight interview where Buddy McGirt just, you know, 
he seems like a very relaxed, no nonsense kind of guy. And he said, look, there, there was nothing complicated about it. We just took it back to basic boxing. And you watch the fight. I'm, I'm quoting or paraphrasing what Buddy McGirt said. Um, he said, you watch the fight. He didn't do anything special. He just boxed and, and used his jab. And, but you've got, but you know, it's a little more complicated than that to get a, to get a boxer in the state of mind and in, and in the position where they can execute the strategy with total confidence against a guy who knocked him out. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's pretty, pretty impressive stuff. But then, you know, whenever I contemplate this question of how much credit to give a trainer, I go back. I remember Don Turner, uh, who got a lot of credit for the resurrection of Evander Holyfield. Mm -hmm. You may remember that. And a journalist asked Don Turner, how much credit should a trainer get for what the fighter does? And, and Turner didn't, didn't hesitate. He said, maybe 10%. <laughs> so so there, there's a trainer, you know, being honest, it seems to me, being very candid about the fact that, well, ultimately, you know, it's up to the fighter and they, it's up to them. They have to, to whatever, whatever takes place in the training camp, however hard the trainer may work to prepare the fighter when the bell rings, it's up to the fighter. They have to execute. And the trainer ultimately doesn't necessarily have all that much to do with it. So I don't know. I don't know if it's, it, it, it's, it's a tricky question. Um, but but on the face of it, you've got to give some credit, at least, to Buddy McGirt for an extraordinary performance, uh, an outcome that I would hazard to guess basically 90% of the boxing people out there just didn't see coming. Definitely. And uh, Tim Bradley saw it coming. He predicted Kovalev by a decision. But, uh, you know, the writing was on the wall in the first fight. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a point of view that I haven't heard expressed yet. But if Kovalev didn't get hit by that overhand right in the seventh round, would he have marched to victory? I mean, he might have won five out of the first six rounds of that fight. He did get hit by a big shot. I'm not going to call it a lucky shot, but he got hit in a vulnerable situation. And it's and it's not like Alvarez couldn't have hurt him again if he got over a huge shot in the rematch. He just Kovalev neutralized it better this time. Uh I think Kovalev did adjust his style a little better in terms of taking less risks and staying in the pocket less. But, you know, he, as you stated before, he had every reason to win the first fight stylistically. Buddy McGirt helped him realize that psychologically. Um, but as I said before, I, I think the writing was on the wall. I don't, I don't think this type, type of style plays out very well for a guy like Alvarez who could be overly defensive at times and, and just put up the earmuffs a little longer than he should. Well, um, yeah, yeah, I agree. I think a big factor, again, one hesitates to say this because you don't want to take any credit away from Kovalev, but you look at the career of Elider Alvarez, you look at his different performances. I mean, I don't know how to account for, for why he wasn't as, what what would you call it as as motivated as as uh as energetic you know i mean this this he should have been even more motivated to win this fight yeah. than the first fight he should have been even more keyed up i mean he should have recognized that okay you win this fight and now the floodgates open 
Now the, the million dollar offers are coming your way. Um, but instead, he kind of reverted back to something that those of us who have followed his career, we've seen this before. And again, like when he defeated Jean Pascal, I mean, as I was watching that fight, the main takeaway of that, of that fight for me was that anytime he wanted, Elider Alvarez could have taken over completely and battered Jean Pascal. He could, in my opinion, I mean, Jean Pascal is a very tough, tough guy, but Alvarez was just that much stronger, more powerful, uh, more on his game, sharper. Yeah. And, and he, he could have, he could have totally dominated, at least with, 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 with more authority than he did. And he might have been able to force a stoppage. But instead, you, stop, you saw a fighter who's very content to let long seconds pass where he doesn't throw any punches. And, and so that side of Alvarez uh, came to the fore again in, in this rematch. So that, that is a factor. And that's not taking anything away from Crusher. Um, but 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 Alvarez, I don't know. I can't account for it. I can't explain. But but there is a passiveness that that sometimes comes out in his in his in his performances. And and I mean, you can't afford to be passive at the top level. You're going, especially with when so much is at stake, and and you've worked so hard and you've waited so long. He had to wait so long to get the opportunity to fight for the world title. He finally got it. He cashed in. Come on, you've got to replicate that performance, and yeah, he did not. It's unfortunate because we see a lot of guys rise to the occasion after they become champion. They become emboldened in their role of uh, a giant slayer in, in some cases. This was not the case. And and honestly, Sergei Kovalev, for as brilliant of an outside fighter he is with his straight shots, with his shiftiness, with his with his hand speed, he cannot fight on the inside one lick. And I think that's something that needs to be stated up front. He does not have infighting skills at all. And that's something Andre Ward exploited uh, in, in both fights, frankly. And that's even something that Bernard Hopkins exploited late in the fight, actually. I mean, in, in some of his moments, roughing it up on the inside, Kovalev just reverted to holding, which is exactly what Kovalev did in the rematch against Alvarez when Alvarez got in close. He held. And Alvarez... Uh, He's not an inside fighter, but he needed to make more of an effort to make it that rough physical fight that would force Kovalev at age 35 to get exhausted and, and possibly punch himself out and, uh, and give Alvarez a chance to retain his title. Because fighting on the outside is exactly what a guy like Kovalev excels in. And, and that brings up my next point is, how does Kovalev stack up against the fellow titleists at this stage of his career? I mean, uh, technically, at least on the outside, I think he has the stuff to beat at least Betterbiev and Bivol, maybe not Vosdick, but I still don't know how he would face that kind of an intense, rough and physical fight that Andre Ward gave him in the second fight and the first fight, and also uh, Lita Alvarez to some extent in the first fight. Yeah, those are all the those are very good questions and and while in my opinion this win uh the, on saturday night over alvarez it has to count in my opinion as 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 one of the best wins you can get at 175 pounds um given everything we've just discussed i would still say that elider alvarez is one of the top three light heavyweights in the world and uh kovalev 
dominated him. So you got to give Kovalev credit. But yes, the, 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 the thing is that the 175 pound division is stacked. There's so much talent there. And also you got to take into account how old is Kovalev now? He's 35. What, 35? Yeah, he's 35. Yeah. And Alvarez I mean, is 34, but you know, Kovalev's 35 with, you know, a lot of a lot of tough fights under his belt now. Yeah, so on the one hand, I don't think for example, Bivol has a scalp on his record as impressive as a lighter Alvarez. You know, Kovalev has has the better win. And I you know, it's my bias, it's my prejudice, but I give Kovalev a lot of credit for that first fight against Ward, which I think he won. Yeah. Um, and then and then I give Kovalev credit for being the guy who finally uh, showed that Bernard Hopkins was, was mortal, you know? Uh, <laughs> so when I look at the whole bigger picture, I have to rank uh, Kovalev uh, near the very top of the 175-pound division now. Having said that, 35 years old, there's a lot of hard miles there. I mean, there's no way I'm putting money on him to beat Bivol, even though I think he deserves to be ranked higher. So maybe that's a slight contradiction. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's, it's almost impossible to say. I, you know, one, one has to clutch at straws when trying to see the future here. Maybe Buddy McGirt has found the fountain of youth for Kovalev, and and he's going to regain that form that made him such a dominant force in the past. Your point is well taken. He he's not very good at infighting at all. He doesn't know and, how to. <laughs> yeah, and and some of these younger guys, um, like Bivol, like Joe Smith Jr. I mean, take your pick. I mean, they might be able to force Kovalev into the kind of fight that he's not comfortable with. And who knows? The result could be something completely different. Um, all I know is that right now, the 175-pound division is one of the most intriguing in the whole sport. There's so many terrific matchups. Um, and right now, there's some buzz about whether or not there could be a showdown between the two Russians, uh, although I guess Better Biev, technically speaking, is not a Russian, but, um, you know, Better Biev versus Kovalev would be a very, very attractive matchup. Uh, I would love to see that. I don't know if, I don't know if that's a, a possibility or not. You know, I, I think Kovalev, you know, I, for, for the same reasons I, I stated, on the outside, I think he's uh, maybe the best were, or the second best fighter in the light heavyweight division and, and better be of, I don't think he applies the type of the type of pressure. I, I feel like it would, he wouldn't make it a physical enough fight to have an advantage. I think, I think Kovalev would be able to outbox better be of and Bivol. Uh, but honestly, I think Marcus Brown might have an even stronger case than he did before. And, uh, after his victory over Badu Jack on the 19th in being one of the best light heavyweights in the world. He's definitely on the up and up. He's a big guy, uh, bigger than Kovalev in my opinion, I think. Uh, a lot of yeah. interesting fights to be made at light heavyweight. Uh, so many, so many. And, and, and I think uh, it bears mentioning because uh, in our last podcast, I think Rafa and myself were amiss. Um, we, we didn't bring up the topic, and it deserves to be brought up, and that being Adonis Stevenson 
Um, you know, what a great, what a great story. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible story in a way, but it's also positive in the fact that he did come out of his coma. He yeah. is recovering. And, uh, that is such a relief to everyone. Uh, well, everybody in boxing really, but especially those of us in Montreal and, uh, those of us who have followed the career of Adonis Stevenson closely. And of course we all wish that there had been a big money, high-profile showdown between Adonis Stevenson and Sergei Kovalev in, say, 2014 or 2015. Uh, we know there was some negotiations, but it didn't happen for whatever reason. And um, But uh, I just want to put that note out there that we, of course, everybody at thefightcity.com, we are so relieved and, um, and we wish nothing but the best for Adonis Stevenson and his family as he continues his rehabilitation. Yeah, absolutely. It's truly a blessing that he was able to survive um, really a life or death struggle for a little while. That would have been a horrific blow, uh, not only on uh, his family, but also on the sport of boxing, a real, a real black guy in the making that we're, we're very lucky as a sport to have avoided in Adonis Stevenson, former light heavyweight champion of the world, former ring magazine, light heavyweight champion of the world, which in my book is the only belt that still counts. Uh, you know, the lineal light heavyweight champion of the world, say what you want about Stevenson, but he definitely had a great run as a champion for a while. So, uh, so Michael, that about wraps it up for this week of the fight city. Any closing remarks? Well, since we were talking about Adonis Stevenson, it bears mention that Alexander Vosdick, I mean, he's getting kind of lost in the shuffle at the moment, again, because there's so much talent in the light heavyweight division. But his performance in that unfortunate fight uh, against Stevenson can't be overlooked. I mean, it's one of the, one of the standout performances of 2018. And, uh, of course, I'm sure no one is more relieved than, than him that Adonis Stevenson uh, will be able to recover from that traumatic brain injury that he suffered. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of interesting questions about what's going to happen next in the light heavy, heavyweight division. We mentioned Better Biev. We mentioned, of course, we're talking about Kovalev. We're talking about Elider Alvarez. I mean, just think about it. There's Badu Jack, Vosdick. Marcus uh, Brown. Marcus Brown. A bunch. I mean, there's so many terrific fights that could happen in the light heavyweight. I mean, World Boxing Super Series, where are you? <laughs> we we need a World Boxing Super Series tournament for the light heavyweight division. I think it would be absolutely fantastic. So th that will be my closing remarks, that, that, that with Kovalev's win over Elider Alvarez, all it does is whet our appetite for more terrific fights in that division. And let's hope that the powers that be can make them happen.